Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. You really have to have everyone on board, the contractor communicating as soon as they hear back, the design team willing to say, okay, we can work around this, make sure everyone was submitting drawings quickly so we can kind of get them back to the manufacturer. Unfortunately, I think we were able to kind of push through all of that with pretty little hiccups. It's clear that we all have to go in the same direction. And I think that's one of the reasons why the project, you know, we managed to actually open the project on time, more or less on budget, and it doesn't happen in every project. This is actually quite special. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Maxwell Yaroche, founding principal of Daft Bureau Architecture in Miami, and Noam DeVere, principal and co-founder of Bond in New York. In addition to being a licensed architect, Max is an assistant professor of research and director of fabrication at the University of Miami, where he oversees the fabrication facilities and operations. He teaches courses on robotics, digital fabrication, and emerging technology in the field of architecture. His work has been included in a variety of publications, such as Architect Magazine and Mass Context, and presented in conferences including the 2023 Smart Cities Conference and the 2019 AIA Conference. Max holds a Master of Architecture from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and additionally, he holds a Master of Business Administration from the University of Miami. Prior to joining the University of Miami, Max was a project architect and worked at internationally recognized architecture firms in both Boston and New York. Noam, with his partner in practice and life, Rauschwerger, founded Bond in 2021. The New York-based award-winning architecture and interior design practice focuses on art and fashion projects, together with a large portfolio of innovative residential design. Prior to Bond, Noam was a director in WeWork and a project leader at OMA New York. 
He holds a Master of Architecture from Harvard Graduate School of Design, Harvard and MIT in the house. The project we will be talking about today is Patbo, a flagship boutique retail store within the design district in Miami, Florida. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com slash podcast. I'm sure this is no surprise to you, but the retail market has experienced challenges due to a combination of factors related to consumer behavior, market dynamics, and the need for a memorable and functional customer experience. As Noam expressed, this is an exciting time for architecture and design taking center stage to address these unique challenges. I think the retail design landscape, let's call it, is going through a really exciting time. What's been happening, as you know, is that D2C, direct-to-consumer, meaning buying online, became huge, even more in the pandemic. And then the typical brick-and-mortar store, meaning that the actual location of the shop changed. It used to be that you had to go to the shop to actually see what's available today. Today, everything is online. And uh, with this client, Patbo, which is a high-end Brazilian uh, women's wear brand from, from Sao Paulo, they had a very good platform, both digital and physical in Brazil. And then for quite a few years, they only had one shop in the States, in, the, in New York City, because they have a great B2C platform and people just buy we work with Patbo on their showroom in New York, which is between an office and a retail shop. But then when the opportunity came to design uh, something in Miami Design District, which is one of the most important design destination, design and retail destinations in the world, it was clear that what we need to create is not just a shop, it's almost like a brand embassy. So it's a place where somebody who's either already a customer or a new customer can walk into the shop and not only experience the beautiful artistry that goes into the garments, but also to learn something about the brand through the space. So I think retail today has moved from just being a place where you sell clothes to being a place where you have an experience. A lot of people talk to the, about this as uh, kind of switching from transaction to interaction so of course they have to, you know, they have to sell, they have to make a lot of money to pay for the rent, etc. But what's really important is that the client sees a physical space that's hopefully astounding and uh, sublime and inspires them and creates another level of connection with the brand. And my company, my office started doing retail a few years ago. We are definitely doing more of it and I think that the brief that we see from clients it's very similar. It's not a Nike shop, although Nike shops are amazing at their own kind of good, of course. It's usually smaller retailers that would put a lot of money into the design, into the experience of the space. And it's uh, instead of just filling it up with, you know, every dress or garment, there's a space for somebody to sit down. There's a place to experience some maybe other products that are not available online. It's a space that hopefully manifests the aesthetic direction of the brand. And again, for us, this was a really exciting moment. The company or Patbo already had a plethora of stores in, the, in Brazil, but this is their first real flagship in America. 
And Design District has buildings by every major company and office in the world. It has an OMA building, has an Herzog and Miron building. Uh, Dealers Cofidio and Renfro are doing like, the new Cartier over there. So it has to be extremely elevated to kind of match the competition. And in the same time, also provide a moment of uh, reprise, uh, introducing the very feminine kind of culture. Uh, it's a women-led company, but also, you know, the beautiful draping of the dress, everything is quite, you know, it's very Brazil, very sexy, very colorful. So our work, our kind of brief was to create a space that would be really incredible, but in the same time would help the retailer to show off the, you know, the garments. So our office hadn't done much retail, so we were happy to partner with Gnome's team to work on this. And what I was surprised by was the kind of pace of the projects. They have to happen fast, and not only because everybody wants their project to open as soon as possible, but as Gnome said, in particular in the design district, it's super competitive. Everyone's opening up a new shop. I think probably the same week we opened, about 10 other shops opened, and you don't want to be second. And so if you spend all this money on this kind of unique experience that you want your customers to experience, and the store across the street opens before you and they have a similar experience, that takes such a knock into your project. And so I think you had to be ready to really turn these projects around as fast as you can. Uh, so they're intense, they're quick, but it's pretty exciting to see a project that really we probably started this year and we're able to open in a couple months, which I think is pretty unique for our world. With a space slotted within the series of uniform facades in Miami's vibrant design district, the design team faced another challenge how to make a mark and stand out above the rest. Their answer was a symphony of design elements that transformed the Pat Bowes store into a captivating work of art. The building itself was uh, designed by a company from a Scandinavian country. I can't remember, it's Denmark or, or Sweden. And it's quite interesting. It has different bumps out uh, on the second floor and the first floor is just kind of lined up with stores. So. Our idea was to try and kind of make a gesture or create a gesture that makes our unit stand out in an array of other, other shops. So that was one thing. And a lot of the work that went into the shop was actually making this remarkable moment stand out. So we decided to push in the front door and kind of the entry foyer by uh, three and a half feet. So there's a more clear connection between the street and the shop interior, like inside, outside connection, and create a large arch that kind of signifies the entry to the shop. And then we painted the entire wood facade pink, which is kind of very typical for Patbo. Again, it's very feminine, and not that pink has to be a feminine color, but I think through the curves of the arch and the paint color, and then uh, similarly applying a vinyl that has kind of pink stripes at the second floor, you create these kind of two intersecting curves that you see from the street. And in a sea of other, I think we have six other shops in our line, ours stands out immediately. Then the idea was to have the original uh, retail space only operated on the first floor. And the second floor was used for uh, storage and such. So it was completely empty and had no, you know, no equipment, no AC, nothing of that sort. So the second challenge was to create a connection between the floors and create a flagship that goes over or extends over two floors. So we insert, inserted this beautiful sculptural staircase 
that was very hard to build and achieve, and we can get into it a little bit later. And then uh, the first floor, the materiality is stone, terrazzo. You walk in, so it kind of extends from the street, harder materials. And the second floor is you go up, is actually this beautiful Parisian salon that has uh, wall-to-wall carpets and curved walls that follow the two demising walls on either side of the space. So you have two experiences. And the thought was that for a client, some people want to come in and just you know, see what's available and kind of step out. But for some other people that actually you know, want to try on a few things, maybe we, they're with family or with a group of friends, they can sit upstairs in the lounge. Of course, they're offered some drinks. It's a beautiful experience. And you have, you have both of these experiences in the same shop. So we tried to create two very distinct spaces with a connecting staircase that really opens up the space and provides this kind of wow moment. And then to that, everything that we designed, all the fittings, all the furniture, everything is custom. All the lighting, of course, is extremely important. So very innovative solutions for lighting throughout, trying to hide as much of the direct lighting source as possible. And maybe lastly, the idea was to also create a space that is very editorial and that the customers, many of them are interested in social media, etc., could take photos in a million places. And we actually saw it in the opening. It's really conducive for that. And when we design retail spaces, many times you have to have an element or you have to design the space in a way that if somebody takes a photo, you immediately know where they are. The most challenging components of the design were the feature stair and the exterior trellis. The exterior trellis and entryway faced a number of constraints. The client came to us early on with the process and wanted incredible, unique facade for the building that could never work. Something may look like a flower made out of fiberglass, which is, you know, again, was very, very beautiful, but clearly could not be done in Miami and not for time, not for code and not for money. And budget is a key, you know, key driver throughout the process here. So we tried to see what's the biggest impact we can get for the lowest uh, dollar, right? Which I think something is my company does a lot of. So we tried to understand what's the envelope we can work within, what are the different zoning requirements, what can be pushed in, what can be pushed out. And we found that if we pushed in the storefront and created this kind of entry foyer, we can achieve two things. We can achieve, first of all, unique visibility, meaning something that's pushed in a little bit, and then the color, the paint color is just paint color. <laughs> Doesn't cost much. So trying to understand it both in 3D and kind of how does it look throughout the building, what you see when you cross the street to the other side. And again, uh, we actually didn't do very much. It's a new storefront system and it's a curved trellis and the rest is painted. Yeah, so I think to add on that, I think the key thing that Noam said is they spent time modeling it in 3D. And I think when you give the drawings to the contractor and when we gave the CAD drawings to the structural engineer, they were only looking at it in 2D. So I kept trying to flag this as something that's a little bit more complicated than it seems like. All of the sections make it seem like a very simple drawing or a simple assembly sequence. And it wasn't that. So essentially we have, originally the idea was to push this thing back and we'd have our building envelope just go directly up from the storefront. So we, I think the storefront's about 12 feet. I think about another three feet, we were just going to build a wall. But in the permitting comments, the structure had to get flipped to go to this beam that was outside. And so now all of a sudden, rather than a kind of plane, we had to come out and build out this waterproof box. 
And essentially, we have the existing store that has an interior wall that now has to become an exterior wall. So we have this wall running parallel to the existing store. You can't access it from their store without shutting them down. We have the storefront coming in on the right side. We have the archway that Gnome's team designed on the left side. You don't have any kind of tolerance there. Everything's locked into place. And so everyone kind of said, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And in Miami, it's a hurricane zone. So everything that's rated as an exterior wall gets particularly complicated very quickly. So we have this beautiful piece of stone that's up against that wall. And that means there's special requirements for how that's going to get assembled. And the structural engineer said, just bolt it in. It's fine. It'll be easy. And then the contractor said, we can't fit behind that wall. We can't access it to bolt anything from the backside. So then we had to go through to redesign it with this clipping system. So it turned into this super complicated thing where everything else had kind of pushed into this three foot seven width. And now we had to figure out how to kind of enclose all of that. So it became a kind of last minute challenge of figuring out how we can kind of wrap this in. The other complicated thing is right at the tightest point of that assembly, there's a column. So everyone didn't realize that that was going to be an issue. So the building code down here for us essentially has requirements for anything that's going to be a steel stud wall, which we could get for about three quarters of the wall. And in the last like 18 inches or so, we're going to run into this column. So it turned into this like super last minute structural engineering exercise. And luckily the Eastern Engineering was the structural engineering company we work with. They were able to figure it out, but I think we needed three different sizes of steel studs. We needed the specialty clips. And what should have been like a very simple plane turned into be this like super complicated specialty wall um, that fortunately we were able to figure out. For the feature stair, the team had to balance an organic design intent, constraint of the existing space, and building code stair requirements. The tricky part was when they handed the project off to us and we knew that we had the schedule and we had to essentially start prefabricating it before getting the permit approved that we couldn't miss. And so we looked at it. We realized we technically met all of the egress requirements for the building, so we didn't have to treat it as an egress stair, which was going to be great. And then we wanted to say, let's make sure we're right about this. Let's reach out. We talked to the fire marshal. They said, you're good. You have two exits. You're fine. And the building official, it's tricky in our code here. It doesn't say anything about stairs other than egress stairs. It just says, go to the egress section, and here's your requirements for the stair. And so we said, hey, we don't really have any requirements for it. It's not going to be an egress stair. It's a feature stair. I said, we don't care. It has to meet the same requirements. You don't have to fireproof it, but everything else has to meet. And for us, it's tricky because you have all of these beautiful spiral staircases in the design district. Acme has one. Diesel has a beautiful one. And you essentially only have about a two-foot radius that you're allowed to have. So you can really fly down these. They can be very tight, very compressed. As soon as you moved into what's considered a curved stair, it goes to two times the width of the stair. So for us, that meant a seven-foot radius in a 28-foot wide space. And we have two curves. So that's essentially seven foot radius on one side, seven foot radius on the other side. So Gnome's beautiful staircase all of a sudden got massive. So we had to go back. We had to like maximize the ratio of like width so that way we could reduce the width of the radius requirement. And we ended up through two or three different reiterations with us and the structural team, ended up getting it within one inch space of tolerance in the space. So we essentially had, it goes essentially right between two beams, concrete beams in the space. And so you're locked into those and we have to kind of puncture through both and then be able to run everything else through that. So that was really challenging in terms of controlling the kind of size of it and also making sure it doesn't turn into this kind of really long staircase that's really small. So as you're walking up it, it feels like you're one person kind of going up a three foot stair. And I think we ended up getting it to be just about 40 inches wide. So it still feels big enough. You can have a conversation with someone while you're walking up it. And we're just able to kind of sneak it up. And I think working with their design team, I think Lisa from Gnome's team redrew the stair probably five times between sending it to us, sending it to the structural engineers, and we finally got it to work. 
The other tricky part that we hit with it is the schedule again. And so the structural engineers immediately said, we need a foundation. This is a massive staircase. It's going to be heavy. We said, well, if we do that, it means we have to go through an inspection on the rebar inside of the foundation. We're going to have to go through an inspection for the foundation itself. And that's all before we can even put the stair in. We said a little bit earlier, the contractor was trying to do as much ahead of time as possible. Um, so what we worked with the structural engineers was, was a way to cantilever everything off of these steel columns in the space. They didn't need any special footing, so we were able to kind of redesign the structure. Everything's a steel plate going into the existing slab. And what that meant for the schedule was that the contractor could fabricate everything. So they went ahead, they fabricated it, they started installing it in the space, and essentially, I think about a week after we got the permit approval, we called back the building inspector and said, hey, we just built the stair in seven days. It definitely hasn't been under construction for a month. And that really, I think, was the kind of shifting point, getting that approved to kind of clear us for the runway for the last couple months of the project. Now, accomplishing this ambitious design in and of itself sounds complex. But as Max alluded to, the team also had to contend with a very stringent schedule. The space needed to be completed in time for Art Basel, an international art fair that will generate a significant amount of the company's sales for the quarter. From design contract to the grand opening, the space was turned over in about 10 months. Say so we started in February or March, Gnome's team flew through the design phases and I think handed us off the project probably end of May, early June. So that gave us about six weeks to turn around the CD set. And then the biggest issue that we faced was permitting. So in the city of Miami, it's notoriously a little bit slow. It's been made a little bit worse right now because everything's being routed through a zoning department after we had the Surfside collapse. So you have two people reviewing every single project that happens in the city, which means they're at a minimum giving you 60 days for your review cycle. So the project essentially then would have to go on hold for 60 days. Hopefully you get approved on that first cycle. It also means you can't respond to any of the other comments for plumbing. They had some minor comments about ADA requirements and things like that, but you can't respond. So you're kind of like trying to tell the client to be patient, to be calm, we're going to get there. And so what it really took, I think, for us was talking to the contractor saying we didn't want that to be the hiccup in the project. Um, and we had to figure out how we could start slicing it up. So luckily for us, the contractor was very into that mindset they bought in. They started doing everything that they could inside the space. We submitted a quick demo permit. They started framing everything. And then we really had to look at the kind of long lead items, the stair being one, the storefront, any kind of the structural steel that was going into the project and say, we're going to have to start ordering these things. In some cases, ordering them even before we're getting shop drawings. And for a design team, that's hard, right? We have to make sure we don't hit any hiccups in the permitting phase and say, oh, we actually have to change this. That's going to be a significant change order if that happens. So we had to talk to the building officials, see what we could get them to kind of pre-approve, see what we could get the contractor to get fabricated in time. And then that way, the day that the permit came, we essentially wanted to be calling for our first rough inspections essentially the next week. So we got the permit, I think, September 15th, and now we're almost at December 15th, and the project's complete. So... The contractor went in a major sprint, got everything kind of put into the project. We did hit a couple hiccups. For instance, the storefront, we had talked to the vendor. They said, sure, we can do this. This is not a problem. And then we realized that they had missed a curb. And so this little 10-inch curb essentially threw off. We had a maximum 12-foot panel, but our door had to slide below that 10 inches for the curb. The curb. So essentially that meant we had to go back to the structural engineers, add some steel in, change the storefront. We were able to do that and pick it up before they manufactured it. But those are the kind of things that... You really have to have everyone on board, the contractor communicating as soon as they hear back, the design team willing to say, okay, we can work around this. 
make sure everyone was submitting drawings quickly so we could kind of get them back to the manufacturer. Um, and fortunately, I think we were able to kind of push through all of that with pretty little hiccups. For the finishing touches, interior materials are a celebration of Patbo's Brazilian heritage, adding an extra layer of authenticity to the space. Client, the, the boss from Brazil, her name is Patricia Bonaldi, started a company with her husband 10 years ago. I mean, really self-made and knows what the client wants. So although, you know, maybe my company has a very clear kind of aesthetic, there was a question how to bring in kind of how to elevate, you know, these ideas of materials coming from Brazil that are considered at least in their eyes feminine and kind of approachable with our view that this should be a very elevated space that has to compete with Louis Vuitton and Dior and Chanel, or at least has to be at the same level. So it was clear to us that we have to go in a direction that has custom materials and custom mixes and millwork and metalwork throughout. Nothing that you can really recognize as a product. So the first floor idea was that it's a part of the street. It's like a plaza. So we went with a terrazzo material. We created the specialty mix with a company from Michigan that was poured in place. So we actually had a few runs to try different grain colors. We wanted more pink. They brought in more, you know, orange. At some point, you also there's a there was a question of time and money. So we have you have to compromise at some points. But we were very happy with where we got. And then the area behind the main retail space, which is the fitting rooms and back of house, is all uh, terracotta tiles. So you move from this very kind of white uh, striking space to a space that has a darker kind of richer color, which is more conducive for trying clothes and to have, again, a different experience. So we use a terracotta tile that came from Italy. Again, was late. You know, somebody has to call the company in Italy, you know, yell at them, tell them that they're never, never going to work in America again. You know, all of these things, which are very true. That's where my Israeli, I guess, directness comes into play. To that, add some softness with fabrics that were sent from Brazil. So all the drapery. And we also found a specialty uh, or a custom uh, finish for all the metal work. So the hanging is all kind of cantilevered from the wall. You know, we said brass, but brass could be a million types of things. And we landed on an um, anodized kind of French gold color that has an integrated lighting system inside. So when you put all of them together, you get this kind of very rich feeling or something that you haven't seen before. And in the same lane, thinking about the second floor is this kind of salon in our place that you would feel really comfortable to spend maybe an, even an hour or an hour and a half, right? So we went with custom color rugs and the walls are all finished with beautiful oak veneer with some shine to it. So again, the lights really bounce from it. And even the fitting rooms in the second floor that are a little, again, a little bit of a different uh, experience are all wood lined. And the millwork for these fitting rooms came from Brazil, from a millwork team that worked with us in Brazil. And I think that's Really key to note that when you work on a project, when you select materials, it's really important to think about the origin and the story of the materials. So, of course, we can source marble everywhere and we can source terrazzo everywhere. But I think that there is an added value to getting the fabrics, especially if this is, you know, this is a women's wear company, to get the fabrics done in Brazil in their factory and to get the mill workers from Brazil with their veneers and their woodworking into the space. 
And I think these things really add up to, to something that has a different kind of character. And many, and you know, even the, even the stone is sourced from South America. So of course you could find approved equals, something that we know, all know very well. You can find an approved equal locally, but I think that pushing to find materials that have a story is really important. And in the same line, we also took care of the interior design, the, all the furniture are sourced, you know, everything is sourced from Brazil, from emerging designers. So every corner really has a lot of depth and charge. And I think it really shows up in the overall aesthetic of the space. The millwork presented a challenge, navigating language barriers and the absence of shop drawings. It was interesting. The client came to us, I think, as a little bit of a value engineering proposal too, to say, have some amazing millwork down in Brazil that could do this and I think adds to that story of materiality. But they don't do shop drawings and they haven't built anything here before. And they don't speak English. Yeah. They don't speak any English. Yeah. So we knew that we were set up for some challenges and we talked to them. So they did some veneering for the interior walls on the second floor in the changing room. And they also veneered the interior side of the mullions. So it turned into a big push at the end, but also a lot of last minute communication. So they essentially say, well, how are we supposed to build this veneer for the storefront when we don't have the storefront installed yet? We have the shop drawings but they're not going to be installed in time. So we had to essentially send them the shop drawings or shop drawings from the storefront manufacturer and say, build it what you can there. It's not going to be exactly what's installed on site, but we don't have time for you to come back and then go back and build it. And then also, by the way, everything that has to be installed has to be class C for fire rating. They go, we don't have fire ratings. We don't have to worry about that for millwork. And so it turns into this last minute, no, we very much have to meet that. So I think they had to adapt a lot on the spot. Fortunately, they shipped everything. They were able to make the adjustments for the second floor millwork, installed that pretty seamlessly. And then fortunately, they came, they pretty much stayed the entire weekend before opening with a table saw and chop saw, redid the entire veneering for the interior. But I think it turned out pretty great. As we've discussed, retail design is not just about selling products. It's about crafting a memorable customer experience. Factors like store layout, lighting, and overall ambiance play a crucial role in influencing customer behavior. And Noam knows a thing or two about this aspect of design. I made a career about on uh, you know getting designing space with sexy lighting. Seriously, <laughs> so so you know this. The fitting rooms, everywhere, everywhere you look, it's really important to have the light, you know, kind of organized around the experience again. So that's what makes it, I think, stand out from just another shop. This is, a, you know, a boutique. It's about an individual experience, but then, you know, that you can come in, the clothes, you know, show themselves, but then you can, you can try them on. You look great. Maybe you try something that you didn't mean to, you know, you sneak a selfie in the fitting room, then your friend takes a photo of you on the you know, on the staircase, all of these, especially for a young brand like Pat Bow, are extremely, extremely important. In the end, the Pat Bow flagship boutique in Miami is a space where every element contributes to a shopping experience that is visually stunning and authentically Pat Bow. Without the client, architects, and contractors' complete alignment, this would not have been possible. You know, the, the ability to open on time is really a testament to the harmonious relationship between architects, design team, 
contractor and an incredible client, we haven't mentioned her name yet, Kara Chen, who's the president of Patbo, all working in the same direction and problem solving, you know, day to day, nothing is too big or too small to, you know, personally deal with. And I think that this really got us to where we are. This is not one of these projects when you have an architect from abroad, you know, and a local architect that has like no connection with the arc, you know, with the architecture team or the design intent and the client that maybe, you know, has never been to the space before. I think in this case, everybody was so invested personally, including Kara, who's, you know, a president of the company, just solving issues on a day to day basis and having an incredible contractor like Red Door that has worked in design district, knowing that they have our support, of course, also our critique but have our support, that really helped to get the project built. There were really no fights over ego or over, you know, if somebody blew up something, you know, it's clear that we all have to go in the same direction. And I think that's one of the reasons why the project, you know, we managed to actually open the project on time, more or less on budget, and it doesn't happen in every project. This is actually quite special. Of course, there are always takeaways from every project that we encounter. For Noam and Max? I think for me, one of the items we took for granted a little bit was some of the kind of more high-end, long-lead items that typically come last in the project. And so whether that be mirrors or toilets or things like that, there sometimes aren't a lot of alternates that you can go if you want to have a specialty pink toilet. And those are things that everyone talks about in the beginning of the project. And we say, hey, these are specialty items. We really need to make sure we get them. But we haven't even submitted for permit yet. So the contractor is not going to go out and buy your toilet. And so those are items that I think tend to slip. And we did have some kind of last minute substitutions we had to make there or have some items that are still coming. And I think just making sure those are things that don't get kicked to the end of the project. And as the architect, it's very easy to say, we had it in our drawings. It's not our problem anymore. But the reality is, if we don't follow up on some of those items, they're still not going to be there. And so I think making sure everyone's on the same page and checking in on some of those kind of smaller items can go a long way. Or potentially uh, purchasing. Uh, we typically purchase ourselves a lot of this, anything that's really special to make sure that we get the quality, et cetera. There's some risk, of course, but I think that in a few, in this project, we could have purchased, there's like a pink toilet and a pink sink and they're available, but they're available in two months. And we knew it from day one and we should have just purchased them and I don't know, placed them in uh, Max's car garage or something uh, <laughs> until they're ready, which you know, goes back to the question of like, there's nothing too small or too big for you to tackle because you know that you are in, in charge of the design intent and there could be a plumber who's a sub, sub, subcontractor who doesn't, you know, sees a schedule but doesn't really know what does it mean to get a particular item. For me, another lesson that we learned, especially with fashion clients, is just have a really honest discussion, not only about budget, which we had from day one, but also some ideas that they might have for specialty items like um, drapes or maybe furniture or even the millwork from Brazil, which I think, again, came out beautifully, but was too last minute. And I wish, you know, I wish we actually factored it into the beginning and we could have done more with this incredible resource. But, you know, again, as you said, you, you learn, hopefully, you know, there are going to be more shops for Patpo in, in, in the States and we can, you know, do a better job. For us, the shop, of course, is a flagship, flagship, but we also, through working on it, actually developed a system for uh, storage and a modular system for display and a way to work around the racks with mirrors and shelves that you can move around. 
So there was an added value here for the client that we actually did a little bit of research and development into items and ideas that we can propagate in the next project. From the meticulously crafted exterior to the carefully curated interior, this boutique invites customers into a world where art, design, and commerce seamlessly converge. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what changes Noam and Max thought architects could do to improve the profession. Getting a better understanding of the owner contractor contracts is super important because it kind of dictates how much we can push back on the contractor. And so for instance, in this project, there was one small detail that wasn't kind of particularly important, but based on the way they had their contract, I said to the contractor, you have to install this, I don't care. And they said, no, actually we haven't charged them anything for it. It's a cost plus contract, so we don't have to put it in. And so you kind of end up in this place where you really don't know how much you can push them if you don't really have an understanding of their contract, or sometimes you make a little bit of a fool of yourself when you try to proclaim thinking they have a different contract. And sometimes you're invited to those conversations, sometimes you're not. I think we were invited to some of the VE conversations in terms of thinking about replacements, but not all of them. And so in some cases, I think understanding what the client has agreed to in a separate meeting with the contractor can kind of land you in a bit of a difficult spot. So I think that's one thing that I would like to kind of participate more in on future projects. The other one is meeting minutes, which is someone who hated drafting meeting minutes at my last firm. These are so important. We started taking them for this project, and then when we hired the contractor on, we said it's going to be in the contractor scope. They didn't send the best meeting minutes at first, and we kind of dropped it and didn't say anything. But then it always turns into this finger pointing game, which now with emails, it's you can find out who said what and what we agreed to. But it's such a time sink when someone, this person said this in one meeting, this person said something else via email. I think kind of really going through the task of just taking very clear meeting minutes solves that. To go back and say. On March 15th, you agreed to this. It's very cut and dry rather than us spend hours looking through emails to kind of point at some of that. When you have a client in Brazil and you, you, know, you discuss um, ideas and design with them over WhatsApp and Max and I and some other people speak on Slack, all of these become a part of the project knowledge. So I'm, I actually had a talk about it, a discussion about it with a friend the other day all of these things have to be a part of the contract today. They're real decisions. They we're just taking them, we're just making them, you know, maybe in a more casual way or, you know, in a more visual way. But for me, a part of the challenge of the practice, you know, we are a young practice. We have to rethink how we handle all of these things and maybe take some of the labor and time that's associated with it. And I think maybe there's a way in which you can start, you know, saying, well, WhatsApp is a part of the contract, right? There's a way, there's a thread in the same with Slack. And I'm kind of curious how this could be incorporated into future projects and, in, in, you know, with the highest visibility for everyone. I really enjoyed this conversation with Noam and Max. And I'd like to add my own personal extra shout out and congratulations to Max and his wife on their new bundle of joy. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. You know, leave your ego at the door, produce really incredible design, and be a joy to be around. 
Well, I think for me, my wife and I just had a baby three weeks ago, so I don't feel much about domination right now and more of a kind of survival statement. We're just hoping we can get through the next couple of months. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.